Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today's conversation is with a legendary mountaineer and climber, Graham Zimmerman. It is about his book called A Fine Line. It's an engaging and provocative coming-of-age memoir of uh, Zimmerman's life and maintains this delicate balancing ad, appreciating the joy of climbing while recognizing the sport has a darker side. Graham has seen how mountains get trashed with debris and waste from really massive and unsustainable climbing expeditions and kind of firsthand experiences on the effects that mountaineering in this sport have on climate change, as well as stories of, of friends not making it back from major expeditions. So, And we have a connection through Exped, who's sponsored this show before, and the, the great folks that are over there. And we're going to get into kind of the honest portrayals of the highs and lows of life dedicated to the, the outdoors and to mountaineering. And this was a really enjoyable conversation. Graham tells some great stories. So if you'd like to check out A Fine Line, Searching for Balance Among Mountains, the book that we're talking about, uh, you can go to mountaineers.com. There's a link in the show notes. Mountaineers, friends of the show, we featured many, many books from them and many authors from them over the years. And they always bring their A-game with their book that they publish. So thank you so much, Graham, for being on. Uh, this was a really fun conversation and uh, I always enjoy someone who's also wearing a Hawaiian shirts on a daily basis. I, I'm one of those people and so is Graham. So we <laughs> we were both wearing some pretty great shirts during the interview, which I wish you could see, but we don't do video. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. You heard a little of Graham's story in the intro, but we're going to formally welcome Graham Zimmerman. Welcome to Adventure Sports Podcast. Mason, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, man, this is exciting. I, you know, you got a lot to cover. There's a lot to your life and your story. And I want to do my best to kind of weave my own route through it all, you know, my way up to the the peak of your story, Graham Zimmerman. But uh, the one connection I have to you or... One of them is you're an athlete with XBED, and I've, I've, we've worked with them a lot on the show. And uh, Kaj over there, we, we've he's been a fan of the show for many years. We've had a couple of their athletes on, and your name has been kind of like one of those people. I'm like, I got to talk to him at some point, but you know how life is. Gets busy, time goes by, and next thing you know, it's like two, three years later, and I'm like, I'm so glad when this opportunity came about because it was just, it felt like it needed to happen for years from, from my point of view. So thank you so much for joining. Oh, that's that's awesome. The team over at XBED, they're all good old friends of mine. And awesome people. I think you've dug into the narrative. Like Kai is a key, key sage in my life. He's brought a lot of wisdom. Oh, really? and he, yeah, he's a key character in the book as well. It's just, um, it's just you know, yep. kind of... Somebody who provided me a lot of really good advice. So knowing that he is he is here in the mix with us is really special. Sat down with him many times at like the uh, outdoor retailer. Talked to Susan Conrad, one of their like like kayakers, and I, I use plenty of the gear myself. Big fan, and uh, kind of seemed to be ahead of the curve with just thinking long term with as a company and what to do with their products, how to do it sustainably. But anyway, man, that's 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 awesome. So yeah, good to hear that. From your point of view, they've been great folks too. Something I typically ask first and, and, and want to know, where's home for you? And if that's not where you are right now, where, where are you at right now? 
So I am at home. Home is Bend, Oregon. I live here with my wife, Shannon. We've been here for a little under 10 years. We were here with my dog, Pebble, and we actually just got a new puppy named uh, named Iggy. Little family of humans and dogs hanging out in the high desert of Oregon, and uh, we love it. Do you feel like Bend is accessible enough for you to, to do what you need to do? Because I know you like going up. Is there enough places and ways to go up and Bend? That's a really good question. I, so I really, really enjoy living here because it is a fabulous place for me to train. I, I would be pretty hard pressed to call Bend a great place to alpine climb. But as an alpinist, I have been drawn pretty exclusively to the big mountains of Alaska and Asia and to some degree South America. So those and those are places realistically where I'm where I'm going to end up living. So for me, being in Bend, a place where I can do some really, really good rock climbing. We have a nice little mixed climbing crag here, and it's a really easy place to have big days of vertical in the mountains. And those those are the things that I really need to be really, really strong for the big mountains of the world. Um, and there's also like, a, there's a really robust endurance community here. And it means that I'm able to interface with folks who are not only climbing, but also utilizing their body for other big endurance efforts, which creates a really cool environment in which I can learn and test different different training methodologies and learn about new things that I might not know about otherwise. And that's been really positive. So um, is Bend a great place to alpine climb? Not really. But is Bend a great place to prepare for big alpine climbs? Absolutely. And that's why I love living here. Do you feel humbled sometimes by folks? You know what I mean? Because I used to live near Boulder and it was like everybody and their mom was a former Olympic skier or something. And it's like, oh, I've done stuff. And then it's like, no, I haven't done anything. <laughs> How do you feel in the ranking? I, I I feel that super hard. It's really it's really nice to a live somewhere where you're really inspired by people around you, and also there aren't that many alpinists here, so I don't end up comparing myself in kind of an apples to apples way very often, which is nice. Comparing myself as a climber to somebody who is a you know, a really, really strong competitive cyclist or a mountain biker or trail runner. It's since it's not apples to apples, it means that we can all just more easily just celebrate each other, which is pretty lovely. And I'll, I'll share that that is very much true in my, my marriage as well. My wife is a two-time world champion in ultimate Frisbee. It's the running, the running joke in the house is that, you know, I've, I've won the PLA Dior, which is effectively the gold medal in alpine climbing once, but she has two world championships. So uh, I'm still trying to catch up. <laughs> Power couple. So Halen from Bend now, great place to live, but you know, your family roots are from Kansas. Yeah. So yeah, the full story is conceived in Kansas, born in New Zealand, Grew up in Seattle, then spent a lot of time just traveling the West, um, being pretty transient. Met the woman who is now my wife in Seattle, so ended up kind of my, my my migration pattern kind of centered on Seattle. And then when she retired from Ultimate Frisbee, we moved to Bend, and here we are wow. now. You might be a one of one, Kansas to New Zealand <laughs> to Seattle. I recently met up with a friend at this random spot near our house, and then the next place we met was Sacramento. And I said, man, we might be the only people that met up for on the side of the road here. And then the next time they saw each other was at the Sacramento airport. We might be the only ones ever. I wouldn't doubt it. But <laughs> you might be the only one ever with that pattern. Coming from Kansas, New Zealand, Seattle, you eventually did learn that like you really like to go up. You really like to get to the pinnacle of mountains. What, what kind of opened that door for you? What was that experience of understanding like this is 
this is a whole world I want to explore. And then how did the people around you react to that, you know, blossoming of a new passion? That's, I really love that question. And in, in writing this memoir, it was actually one of the things that I really dug into in terms of why did I fall in love with climbing? What did I love about it? So growing up in the Seattle area, the mountains are kind of ever present. And I feel like as somebody who is inspired by the outdoors, you kind of have a choice to go up to the mountains or down to the ocean. And it's, you're right there, right there on the interface between the two. And I very much gravitated towards the mountains. And at first that was snowboarding and skiing. Then I was exposed to mountain climbing on the volcanoes uh, in early high school. And it's, it's funny, Mason, because I don't actually remember enjoying it that much. I remember it being really challenging. I remember being hungry and tired and scared and badly sunburned. So as, as I was, I call that a Tuesday. Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. Um, and so as, as I was kind of digging into this memoir, I was like, Oh oh man, like what, what was it that really attracted me to this, this practice of alpine climbing? What was it that by like meant that by the time I was 18, I had, I was off to school in New Zealand, off to school in New Zealand with the pretty explicit goal to cut my teeth in the, in the Southern Alps, which are pretty, pretty severe mountain range, a really great place to train for, for mountain climbing. And as, as I look at that, a lot of it was, you know, I, I grew up middle-class suburban kid, I, you know, the, the challenges that I, that I experienced as a kid were mostly things that, that, uh, you know, maybe came from like playing on the soccer field or the ultimate frisbee field or, you know, not getting quite the marks that I wanted on an exam, the consequences that were present in the mountains and the, the, the really the importance of each choice that I made and the challenge of being in those spaces was, was something that was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. And I, I think that it was something I love to say is like kind of, it tickled a dark corner of my heart that I didn't know existed. And, and I really liked it. And it showed me a version of myself that I wanted to know more about. And so much of my, much of my career as an alpinist has been exploring that. There've been a lot more times being an alpinist where I have been in situations where I wasn't really having fun, but it's continued to be something that I go back to over and over again and really, really enjoy and have learned a lot from. For a lot of adventurers, there there is a there is a single expedition or an adventure or an experience that really was the most moving or the most changing. Like pre Graham pre this trip versus post this trip was the most different versus consequent you know subsequent trips and and everything after. But they're not. That's not always the trip or the experience they're most known for. Do those two differ for you? That's an interesting question. I think, I think probably, so there was a trip that I took to Alaska in 2010 with a fellow named Mark Allen. And on that trip, we made the first descent of a route called Vitology on the Southwest face of Mount Bradley. And it was, it was this moment in time where I really got to test my metal on one of like, one of the really badass faces of North America. And, and I remember being up on that wall and it was, it was the, the, it was like night was coming. It was our second night on the wall. We had, we had, we had, we had thought that it would only take us to, or we thought it would take us a day and a half. We had packed a day and a half worth of supplies and, and it was the end of, end of day two. And we were about ter- two thirds of the way up the wall. The climbing had been significantly more challenging 
than we thought it would be. And a big storm had rolled in. And it was this incredible moment where I got to like see myself in one of the stories that I had been reading about for years, you know, up on a really technical route in a storm, sleeping in a tent on a little tiny ledge that, you know, the like the edge of the tent's like hanging off. Like there's a corner of the tent that you, you don't want to climb into because you're, you know, the whole thing's going to topple off. And we're up there and, and, and I just have this memory of thinking it was awesome and just loving what we were doing. And, uh, and yeah, there was a lot of hazard there. There was a lot of hazard mitigation, but I, I remember this sense of like, oh yeah, this is it. Like, this is the kind of thing that I can do. I'm proving to myself that I'm capable of this. And I, I like, I like what this, I like who this is crafting me as a person into. That ascent ended up, we thought it was going to take 36 hours. It ended up taking us 99 hours. Got very hungry. We were very tired. And, and I think that when we came down from that climb, it was a point when, if, where I could have said, you know what, like, fuck this. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> want this. This is a bad idea. And, and you instead, probably had that thought, you know here and again going up or in the middle of yeah, it. Maybe not. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it crossed my mind, Yeah, but the resounding, the resounding reaction I had to that experience was like, Oh, there's a lot I could do to improve and let's figure that out. And let's, let's go. This is because this is awesome. And at, at that point I only increased the cadence of trips that I was going on. And, uh, and that was, and that climb was also kind of my first like sort of splash in the climbing world. It was like the first time I was featured in climbing magazine and stuff like that. And it was something, something that I was able to lean into to garnish more support towards my climbing and go try bigger, harder things. How quickly did your scope grow and expand to kind of the bigger projects you wanted to do? What, what was always kind of out there as the the pinnacle of what you're trying to get to, you know what I mean? A lot of people will, will look towards the Himalayas or just, you know, the seven summits or something. What was it for you? Was it those classic mounds? Was it, was it something else? You know, that's, that's a really interesting question. And I think as I kind of look at who I am and how I get out climbing or, or just about anything, I'm a very like process oriented person. And I mean that in the sense of like, when it comes to climbing, I'm not really in it for like the summit as much as I am. Like I love the process of preparing for the expedition. I love the process of going on the expedition. I like, I really enjoy sitting in base camp and like preparing and strategizing and then subsequently actually being on the climb. And that's, and that's something that has been very true of my career overall as well. When I was. That, that's enjoying in, the journey right there. Yeah. It, yeah. It, essentially. Like, I like, I lean into that cliche pretty dang hard. And, and I, I say that to say it was never like, okay, someday I am going to like do this and that will be the finish line. For me, it's always been this continuum of like, wow, like that was awesome. Or wow, that didn't go that well. Like, what can I learn from that? That, what can I bridge from that experience and where should we go to next? And I will say that going to the Karakoram was always something that was in the back of my mind, even though I didn't end up going there until 2015. I found myself really investing in the Alaska range. And between 2008 and 2000, gosh, I guess about 14, I took over 10 trips, like personal trips into the Alaska range to go try new routes. I had a similar kind of phase in Patagonia and then 
And then I, and then I really zeroed in on the Karakoram and started spending all of my time and energy to go spend time on trips there. And that kind of investment in each of those spaces has been a really, really crucial part of how I have gotten that climbing. And has also like been where I've really pulled a lot of enjoyment from is like investing in those spaces. And if you look at my climbing career, it is, it's kind of clustered. And then with a few kind of other points where like, oh, I went to this area, but maybe I didn't find quite what I was looking for. And then I went to this other spot and like, oh yeah, here it is. And then I'll take a bunch of trips there and like invest in different things that I find in that area. And not only do I find that as a great way to invest in space and create lovely relationships with these ranges, but it's also how I've been able to find things that haven't been done before because I'm there scoping them and returning. It's also a great way to stay safe because those let's turn into ranges that I understand better the weather patterns or what's going on with the snowpack or the rock or whatever, or the geopolitical issues. And then subsequently I'm able to make better decisions on later trips. So you, you enjoy the process of the journey and the expedition. And so I I often, we talk to folks that, you know, they're, they're trying to hustle their way through that park to, to get to the adventure, to get to the summit. And so it's like, you know, blast through town, get through the airport as quick as possible. You seem to kind of relish all those steps. And I'm sure there's certain parts of it you didn't love, but you you seem to enjoy that a little more. Do you think that maybe almost force you to slow down and notice some of the impacts adventures and expeditions and mountaineering was having on the environment versus folks that only try to get to the summit? Does that make sense? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Oh yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And I'll start by saying that downtime on expeditions has been a critical time for me to observe the world around me and make decisions about how I want to get at the world around me. As I have like continued through my career as a climber, like I've, I've always actually had work on the side. It was kind of some advice that was given to me early on. Like, yep. keep your day job. Like, go be a pro athlete. Go do that. But like, don't rely on it wholly. Because it's really hard to be a pro athlete until your, you know, retirement age. Slash like, pro athletes can retire, but a lot, a lot like have to continue to hustle. So as I have been going through this career as a climber, I've, I worked as a geophysicist. I ran a film production company and now I work at Protector Winners. And so my, my day-to-day is pretty busy. There are a lot of push notifications. There are a lot of meetings. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of like making sure that I'm being a good husband and dog owner. And those things are all crucial. And it means that when I am on expedition and I'm sitting in base camp and I don't have any reception, it is this incredible blue sky open space time where I can think big and really consider consequence. I can consider actions. I can consider like how I'm getting at the world around me. And just to like, just as you spoke to just a second ago, like a time where I was able to like really observe the impact that I was having or the impact that I could have. So when it comes to the work that I've subsequently done in climate policy and empowerment around climate action, it's been a huge part of that. It's like sitting around and really thinking about like, okay, like, where am I? What am I doing? And how can I bridge what I'm doing now into making the world a better place? And you start the book with a story about just understanding 
seeing trash like around camps and whatnot. And I think a lot of folks have, have heard those stories, but and say, you know, that's sad or that's unfortunate to, to, you know, have a lot of trash and just heaps of garbage around base camps on these beautiful mountain ranges. But what is it like to actually experience it? Because, you know, that just like pictures don't do things justice, I'm sure these stories don't do it justice until you, until you see it firsthand. Yeah. So I'll start by sharing that most of the expeditions that I have taken to the big mountains of the world have been to places where people don't frequently go, or in some cases where people have never really gone. And it's meant that I have really had the privilege of exploring some of these pieces of Alpine real estate where there ha- it hasn't seen a lot of human impact or not like not direct human impact. I mean, they're microplastics and there's pollution, but there's not like trash sitting on them. When we were on Linksar in Pakistan, the that face was something that people hadn't tried very often. We weren't seeing much or any sign of human passage. When we were in the Lacuna Glacier of Alaska, nobody had been in there for a long time. And, and some of those, in some of those valleys that we were in, it's, it's really, it still looks like nobody had ever been there, which is wild. It's wild to me that places like that still exist. And that's really, really special that like, for lack of a better term, wilderness experience. And in 2021, we went to try a new route on the west side of K2 in the Karakoram. And it was a really special trip for a lot of reasons. It was it was a really incredible objective. I went with a partner who I really, really enjoy spending time in the mountains with. I love going to Pakistan. It's one of my favorite places in the world. But it was my first time going up on one of these big mountains where people have gone year, year, year after year and where commercial expeditions have been run and where just to, just to be frank, like people don't have quite the same relationship with the mountains that I do. It was really eye opening. It's, and that's, this is the first story in the book that you, that you brought up was, was being on this route and thinking about the first ascensionist and thinking about how incredible it would be to be on that mountain for the first time. And having this moment where I was like, breaking trail. And it was just like incredible mountainscape above me. This is on, this is on broad peak on its West face. And then breaking trail into this place where camps have been set up in the past. It's just coming upon like piles of trash. And we're talking about, we're not talking about like down in a base camp. We're talking about like way up on a mountain. We're talking about 23,000 feet, like way up on a mountain in the Karakoram range, Pakistan. And just being like, stumbling into this hillside just covered in destroyed tents and garbage and you know there's all sorts of stuff that's just lying under the snow and and it it really kind of breaking this like lovely meditation that I was having of being up in the mountains and really enjoying that space in that case by myself and then in that really being badly disrupted by the the remnants of others who don't have the same relationship with that space or same respect for that space that I've really fostered in with within myself and really value within others. And that being, that being really challenging and honestly, pretty, pretty disheartening. Once you noticed that, was it hard to close that perspective? Like, did you just start noticing it more or was it, did it take it being obvious like that to continue noticing the impact that you were having as you traveled about and what others were having in the pursuit of a summit 
or or an experience outdoors? Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good question. I mean, if you look at my resume, you can see that I have not been back to those really really popular mountains. And part of the reason is that that I was able to kind of refine what it is that I'm really looking for in climbing. I'm looking for first ascents. I'm looking for really technical terrain. I'm looking for building incredible, powerful partnerships that that we can lean into in the mountains, but exist outside of the mountains. And and I'm I'm looking to go to places that have been well preserved, have been well tended, and to continue that tradition in those spaces. So the following spring went to the Kachata Spires of Alaska, a place where people have been a lot, but the ethic in that area has been a lot different. And we had this incredible experience up on this wall. And we're in a valley where people have gone fairly frequently, but but didn't encounter any passage of past parties and didn't didn't really leave, didn't really leave any either. That's something I really value. And I think that's something that's really cool about climbing um, and a lot of outdoor rec activities is we get to really kind of make those choices. There's no there's no like clear rule book of like, oh, you do this and then you have to do this and then you have to do this. There's no kind of set progression that you have to take. Like as long as you're not endangering others or ruining other people's day or trashing the space, like you really, you really get to kind of get at the mountains in whatever way inspires you the most. There's a lot of choice and agency within that. And, uh, and that's something that I really like to remind people, like, it doesn't really matter what somebody else thinks, like do what inspires you as long as you're pervert, preserving the spaces and being a good steward. And as well as in many of them, uh, respecting the communities that came before us, it's a critical, critical component to that as well. Then like you can get at those mountains in whatever way inspires you and gets you the most psyched as well as fits within your parameters of like, uh, safe decision-making and, what you know kind of what you want to do in terms of climbing and things like that you know we 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 have a lot of guests and and maybe this is a more of a personal perspective but i'm finding it harder to just and go and enjoy the adventure the outdoors without some sort of aspect of advocacy or awareness being brought to the place or the style of adventure or it's never just pure fun anymore and I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. You know what I mean? Like it's always, dang it, I can see houses straight through those trees as they're encroaching on the the land or trash, you know, at the bottom of the river or whatever it is. And so there's always this element anytime I feel like I'm going out and it's more and more that it's like, okay, have fun and enjoy it. But the the, the elephant in the room is like, protect it, protect it, protect it. And I just, I don't know. How has that process been for you? Obviously, seeing the trash, it's going to make you think about things differently. Think about all the time in base camp is going to make you think about your impact on the planet through these adventures. When for you did it turn to more advocacy and turn to more bringing awareness to this stuff? I'll answer that in two two parts. I'll start with my story. So I actually have a background in glacial hydrology, how... Uh, like an academic background. Um, and that's how water flows over through and under glaciers. And so, you know, when it comes to particularly climate change and whether or not it's real, whether or not it's us, um, that's something I've been super aware of for a long time. 
Um, that's yeah, something I mean, that's like the go-to metric right there or glaciers. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and the reason is that the high altitude, high latitude parts of our world have been seeing dramatically larger impacts than, than a lot of other areas for a long time. And, and that is, that is changing. That's something we're seeing right now. But so for me, I, that was something I was very worried about the kind of existential dread of oh my gosh, like climate change is upon us is, is something that like, like many of us was very much, um, in the back of my mind, but I did not feel as though I had the ability to take any action on it. And I I also felt that the career that I had chosen for myself was in many ways contradictory to climate action. And I'm super thankful to the organization protect our winners they're the ones who really brought me into the conversation is that, hey, listen, like the stories that you have from those high latitude, high altitude parts of the world alongside the platform that you have as a professional athlete, those are really powerful tools when it comes to advocacy. And and so that's been something that that's that's a journey that they encouraged me onto and gave me the tools in order to like learn how to use my voice in order to learn how to take action. And they also gave me the kind of the opportunities to go to DC, to go speak to the United Nations, to go, uh, you know, speak to my local community on the the things that I was seeing in the big mountains of the world and why they are crucial and the actions that we need to take in order to mitigate our climate impact. And so that's, that's, that's been a really, really powerful journey for me. And I think that to your kind of, to your, to your notes on like, feels like everything has to have an advocacy or, you know, some sort of like political bent to it these days. Like we're out in the mountains and we're thinking, we're not just like existing in those spaces. We're like looking out and seeing climate change. We're seeing, you know, urban, like the, we're seeing sprawl on the edges of urban growth, growth boundaries and things like that. I think that I, I agree with you that that is the case. And I think it's something that while we should be really intentional with how we're getting at climbing, and I think we should make sure that we're doing everything that we can to provide ourselves with time outside time with that kind of like that, that ability to think big, build partnerships that I was talking about that has been such a crucial part of my climbing. I also think that the fact that we are not just escaping to the hills and running away from society and instead are in a position where we are empowering ourselves with stories to we can utilize to drive climate action or drive action on social equity and social justice. Like it's it's bringing our entire community into this new phase of what it means to be an outdoors person. To be a climber is no longer to be somebody who is on the on the edge of society is kind of like sort of countercultural. We are now we are now pretty like pretty culturally centered. People are listening to what our community has to say. And that creates an opportunity for us to like utilize these things that we love and these places that we really, really care about in order to make the world a better place, which is something ultimately, ultimately that like gets me really, really excited. It means that we as climbers can be not only people who do these incredible things in these wild parts of the world, but we can also be part of the change that the world needs in order to bring everybody along towards the systemic climate solutions that 
that we need and everybody needs in order to like be able to sustainably exist on this planet. Speaking of having something to say, tell us a little bit about a fine line. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, I think it's interesting you because you've produced movie or, or films and podcasts and all sorts of things. And I know you had a media company for quite a while. Why a book and why now? Why not five years ago? Why not a book in 10 or even 20 years? Why this medium today or really well not today you know what i'm talking about october 1st technically <laughs> <laughs> we can be clear it can for me it can be today i've been i've been in you've, this been, you've been at it for a while yeah it's a process I'm, I'm delighted i'm delighted we get to include more people soon because it's been it's been it's been me and a couple editors who i'm super thankful for jamming on this thing for a minute <laughs> I can imagine that's a that. really interesting question i don't know if i have a really great prepared answer for you on why a book now it's what I want as an editor. That's what I want. I don't want a prepared yeah, answer. Catch, catch, catching me. Here we go. Um, okay, so why, why a book? Why now? I will, I will first say that I am somebody who really enjoys literature, and I am somebody who really places a lot of value in the long form storytelling tradition in climbing and in the outdoors in general. It's something that I engaged with a lot when I was younger. I'm still somebody who reads a lot and it's something that I really enjoy. And it's something that I think that when you, when you spend the amount of time that it takes to read a book, when you spend that amount of time with a story, you get things from it that you might not Otherwise, and I'll, I'll wholeheartedly admit that like I don't have as much time to read now as I used to. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I listen to more audiobooks than I do actually read books. And if I had one thing that I wish I had more time of, more time for, um, reading books would be really high on the list of things I would wish for. I think that I think it's a really cool way to kind of go deep with a story or a narrative or a person when the possibility of writing a book, writing a book bubbled up with Mountaineers books, it was something that I was really excited excited about. And I had to take a really hard look at, A, if I had time for it, because it turns out writing a book takes a bunch of time. It takes a bunch of time. It was also something where I had to take a really hard look at the story I wanted to tell and make sure that I felt as though I was adding something to the kind of you know, the the tradition of writing about climbing that there wasn't just a repeat of what others had said, trying to say something new, trying to build upon that that tradition rather than just kind of like repeat something that was already there. If I had one hope with this book is that I've done that. Um, ultimately, that, of course, is up to the right reader. When that opportunity showed up, when I decided that I had time, when I like talked to Shannon, my wife, and we kind of looked at this calendar and we're like, cool, I think, I think this is something that, that I can pull off on the outline with Mountaineers and got it to a point where it really felt like we were telling a climbing story, but we were also telling some, telling a story that it really kind of helped guide our community towards a future that we believe in became a pretty easy decision to say yes. How much of it is, you know, biography, how much is, is, you know, your thoughts on certain topics? Is it just kind of a mix of everything? It's very much a memoir. It's not, it's not, not a biography. Um, I dug into the difference between those two and to, at the risk of over-explaining, uh, autobiography is kind of like, you know, the whole truth, nothing but the truth kind of thing. Whereas um, 
Whereas a memoir, you know, it's all true, but but there there's a lot that's left out here. It's very much cherry picked, and it's and it's you know not cherry picked in a way that means that it's a misrepresentation of my life, but just to make sure that it's something that's is a good story, something that carries people along and has the messaging the messaging that we're looking for and things like that. And you know, in terms of like, does it does it kind of like spin spin out into being a sort of manifesto at all? I don't. I don't really think so. It does take a hard look at decisions that I've made or actions that I've taken and why I took them, but I really did everything I could to to keep it couched in in a framework of of show don't tell. And something I'll I'll share Mason that I think you'll get a kick out of is that something I did when I was writing this book is I, I read a lot. I read a ton of memoirs looking for what I wanted a sound way like and how I wanted to balance balance those two things. And, and there are some memoirs that that are that are manifestos as well that like do a really, really good job. If you look at Lauren Fleshman's book, Good for a Girl, it's like very much like it drops kind of into like manifesto format and like it's incredible. It's that I don't think that would have been my place to do that in the way that Lauren did there. And the book that I landed on that really spoke to me in terms of how I wanted to sound was a book called Barbarian Days by again a guy named William Finnegan. And it's like this Pulitzer Prize winning surf memoir that if you haven't read it, it's incredible. I cannot write like Will Finnegan, not even close. I this will not win a Pulitzer. But when I was looking at how he tells his story, how he carries like really strong messaging alongside stories about his life and his experiences, I was really inspired by it. And so I ended up reading that book over and over again as I was writing this one, just to kind of keep myself on track with that balance. And, and it's it's one of the components of of a fine line that I'm really proud of is is how that that came out. It's something I feel really good about. Yeah, I, I've heard of that book. I haven't read it. I have to check it out again. Well, what do you hope people take away from this about either you or about adventures or philosophy? And what do you hope people don't take away from it? You know, what are you hoping they avoid? You read so many autobiographies and memoirs. You probably came across things. You're like, ooh, I don't know if they meant for that to, to, to read that way. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. It's a good, that's a good question. In terms, I'll start with, with what I want people to take away. For me, climbing has been this thread that has woven its way through my entire life and it has been one of the most powerful teachers in my life. And, and that comes in many forms. That comes in you know the time I have spent on the mountain having incredible experiences. It has come from time I've spent on the mountain, in the mountains, having some really challenging experiences. And just as importantly, it has come from the people that I've spent time in the mountains with the mentors that I have, that I have been really, really fortunate to have in my life through, through climbing. What I really tried to capture within this memoir was what the mountains have taught me. And to try to make those lessons and those perspectives accessible to to folks who maybe don't have the opportunity to go, you know, try big hard first descents in the Karakoram and and make 
those things accessible. Part of that is also that the literature that I was brought on up on when it came when it comes to climbing was like was very muscular and told the reader, or at least told this young reader, 16 to 18 year old Graham, that I should throw away everything in my life besides climbing if I wanted to be the best climber that I possibly could. And what I ended up finding was that throwing away everything else and only dedicating your climbing was a great way to be lonely and guide yourself towards bad decisions. And in fact, the biggest successes that I've had in the mountains have come from a balanced relationship with those spaces. My climbing being balanced against a career in advocacy, a marriage, partnerships, friendships, other things outside of climbing that that I can bring into the mountains with me, that I can brainstorm, that I can think big on, that I can go home and deploy. That's really been the, where I found my greatest success. My best climbing has come after I bought a house and got married and had a job at Protect Our Winners. And did you think that it wouldn't? That's something that if you had asked, if you had asked me as a, as a young, young guy, I, I would not have thought that. And I think that's something that is not necessarily present in, in the literature and in a lot of the storytelling. Climbing can be really powerfully additive to the rest of your life and the rest of your life can be really powerfully additive to climbing. And that's, that's what I'd love for folks to come away with. And gosh, what do I not want folks to come away with? I, you know, I, I really, I really try to avoid too much, too much kind of like toxic ego about climbing showing up in this book. And, and I don't, I don't think it did. But if there are, if there are moments of it, I, I hope that folks don't, don't walk away with those as their primary, primary theme on the book. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's if, uh, if I had one thing, you know, and, but yeah, yeah, not like coming away with like, what it means to make a good decision, what it means to survive, how critical it is to survive rather than to get mangled in the mountains, make good decisions, have a long career rather than like a short career that you try really hard on. Those are the things that I want people to, to take away. And uh, and I also like, I'll say that one thing, like part of this book for me was kind of looking at the folks who I really looked up to as a young climber and realizing that they they were wrong in some ways. And that I could learn from that and progress from that and take that, take that kind of foundation as something that I can grow on, grow from. And I'll tell you what, Mason, I really hope that folks do the same thing. I hope that in 15 years, some young climber comes up to me and says, Hey, listen, like I took, I took your advice and I, and I ran with it. And uh, some of it was good, but I learned a lot and I built on it. And here's the stuff that you got wrong. I would be so stoked on that outcome. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of pour that much attention and, and thoughtfulness into analyzing it. That'd be, that'd be a high honor. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, that'd two, two things. And it's funny, you, you mentioned becoming a better climber as almost responsibilities pile up. We had a, <laughs> you know, th- that is counterintuitive. It's about as counterintuitive as, you know, regular exercise and exertion gives you more energy. You know, that doesn't seem like it would make sense on paper, you know, just math, but it does. And uh, someone else, another climber that shared that on this show was Tommy Caldwell. And it was like right before the Don Wall, he was like, I was thinking the whole time, I want my kids to think I'm cool one day. 
And what if I don't do anything that they think is cool? Maybe this will be something they think. So it's, it's a huge motivator a lot of times. And uh, I was like, wow, I never would have guessed that, but it's, uh, it's funny. It's funny how that works, but it does work. And maybe something too, about having just a really balanced life and taking that pressure off of, you know, those other buckets of life can kind of take that pressure off the expectations for this one, which, you know, in a lot of ways gives you more freedom to be okay with whatever outcome versus forcing a, maybe a bad decision. Yeah. Well, I'll first say that Tommy is a huge inspiration. The work that the work that he does to balance his career with like being one of the best climbers that the world has ever known with uh, really having an incredible impact on the world around him. It's, it is super inspirational. I mean, we are we are all on a continuum together in terms of what it means to be somebody who loves the outdoors and is deeply invested in them and is also trying to save them. We're on that together, and we are we are just out here out here learning. And uh, hopefully, this this book can exist as kind of a signpost along the way. If I can ask one more question, that's a two parter. That's kind of a theme. I I, <laughs> I usually ask two or three questions at a time. Sorry about that definitely something I'm working on for, for in the book, you know, a fine line, you know, you mentioned there's, there's two things I want to ask. What can you share about what is the hundred year plan? What can you share about that to kind of, I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think that could kind of, I don't know, pique people's interest for the rest of the book. And, and I love your philosophy too, about uh, imperfect advocacy. And I know you touch on both. What can you share about both of those without giving too much away? Not worried about giving stuff away here. Uh, those are two. Those are two really, really lovely subjects that we dig into in the book, and I'm happy to talk about as much as you like. We'll start with the 100 year plan, which is like much, much more personal, and it's something that, like, circling back to to Kai Bune over at Exped, who who you talked about, he's the one who really introduced me to the concept. And and as a young climber, let's see, when I first met Kai. Sorry, it wasn't when we first met. When I first met him as an adult, it was at the Outdoor Retailer Show in, I think, 2011. In my early 20s, I was hell-bent on hard climbing. It was something that I was super fired up on, and I was not really thinking about longevity. I was just thinking about how hard a route I could put up in the mountains. And Kai really brought me in on this concept of the 100-year plan that just if you die in the mountains, then you're done climbing. If you get really badly injured in the mountains, then you might be done climbing. But if you put everything that you're doing in the mountains through the filter of, I would like to live to be a hundred years old, then you end up in a situation where you may say no to some really hazardous situations, but you're going to do a lot more climbing if you live to be a hundred years old and you keep that up. That really turned into one of my goals as a climber and was something that was really influential for me and something I really tried to make sure was clear in this book was you can go do really challenging, hard uh, routes in the big mountains of the world while still making decisions that hedge your bets towards coming home in one piece. And sometimes that means that you go on entire expeditions where you don't get up anything and you have to be okay with that. But if you give yourself the opportunity to continue going back over and over again, then you're going to get a lot of climbing done. You're going to have a lot of opportunities to do whatever it is that you're fired up to get done. And you can live a long, fulfilled, 
life. And that's something that I've really leaned into with my career and something I really tried to share in this book. And I think another component to that is also like, how do you make climbing something that is sustainable in your life? And as we talk about balance between climbing and my marriage or my career or my role in my community, by balancing those things, that climbing can subsequently be sustainable and something that I continue to go back to over and over again. I can continue to like get those lessons that climbing teaches me, which is really powerful. And just kind of a final note on that is that I think that when we look at the best climbs, they are these really incredible moments in time when you have a climber who is in really good shape and in really good mental and really good mental space at the base of a route that is in perfect condition with good weather. Um, and when I think about this, I think oftentimes about Yuli Steck at the base of Annapurna back in 2013. He found himself incredibly fit at the base of one of the big walls and one of the 8,000 meter peaks by himself with a new route that was in perfect condition. And he said yes to it. What is one of the most incredible climbs of the last few generations of climbers. And so those, those opportunities are things that in, in each of our own ways are going to be present for each of us. And you got to always be prepared for them, but you also got to know that like, it's not always going to be that way. And when sometimes when it's not, you just got to say no. And the more time you spend in the mountains, the more time you spend going to those places, the more opportunities you provide yourself for those incredible moments when it all comes together. And, uh, and that's, and that's really what it's all about. Did you want to dive into uh, imperfect <laughs> advocacy? Just ending with some simple questions here, man. I know it. Dang um, it! I should have. I should have fit this in the middle. I just. I, I think yeah, they're great. Yeah, uh, I think they're great lessons for any adventurer, anybody listening to think through because it's a you know what 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 brings you back out more and you know a lot of people might feel that they have to be a perfect example to advocate for any idea. One of the biggest, if not the, just simply the biggest challenges for me getting into climate advocacy was the perceived hypocrisy around my personal carbon footprint and the impact that I was having personally. And I think that this is true for a lot of people. We see this massive problem of climate change we know that it is people. We know that it is coming from the burning of carbon to create energy. But due to the fact that we burn a lot of carbon ourselves to go on trips, to do our jobs, to just generally live our lives, we feel that we are unable to take action on climate due to that perceived hypocrisy. And I am here to share that I think that that is horseshit. And the reason is, is because we have been sold the idea that we solve climate by managing our own personal carbon footprints. When in fact, A, we all live in a system that requires the burning of carbon in order to get work done. If we want to do stuff on our computers, we want to go travel to do anything. If we want to commute into work, if we want to take our families for a vacation, it all requires burning carbon right now. That means that we are existing in a system where if you want to do stuff, 
and me being somebody who loves doing stuff, I want to do anything, it's going to require burning carbon. In fact, the carbon footprint that is the biggest problem is not mine. It is the carbon footprint of the big corporations that are like that are burning the most. I think that it is 70% of carbon burn in the United States is burned by 100 corporations. Additionally, um, there aren't really great other options for me to take on besides burning carbon in our current system. And what that means to me, Mason, and something that I really lean into hard is that we need to pivot away taking on climate change by dealing with personal change and move towards dealing with systemic change and changing the system in which we exist so that we are able to continue to do the things that fill our cup to continue to progress forward as a society in terms of technology, in terms of uh, the conversations that we're having, the, the economy that we're running, all these things that we are all intrinsically invested in. We need to change that system so that it is running on clean energy rather than on dirty fossil fuels. And if we can do that, then we can continue to do these things that we love, continue to do these things that inspire us, continue to do these things that like keep food on the table and keep our kids educated and engaged with the world. And we can do them in a, in a carbon neutral or at least much more carbon efficient way. And something that we found at Protect Our Winners is that one of our most powerful tools for actually driving that systemic change are our stories. Um, we, you know, we've, we've proved pretty well proven that like hitting them with the facts and getting people really scared about climate is not a great way to drive climate action. We've, we've been trying that for a bunch of years and it hasn't moved the needle. And a bunch of research has shown that like bringing people in with stories and with common ground is in fact one of the most effective ways to bring people into how we can move towards climate action, particularly when it comes to systemic change. And so as people who are spending time in these inspiring environments that in these inspiring landscapes that are seeing climate impacts, we have climate stories that we can utilize. And I, I don't mean we like pro athletes. I don't mean we like influencers. I mean like anybody who spends time outside and who is invested in the outdoors. We all have stories that we can leverage in order to drive change in the world around us. And what that, to kind of get back to one of your earlier questions, what that means is that we can go to the mountains, we can go to the rivers, we can go to the ocean, and we can have these incredible experiences. And then we can also be paying attention to the impacts that are taking place. And then we can bring those home and utilize those within our communities and communities adjacent to them to encourage people to vote, to call their reps, to show up at city council meetings and drive us towards that systemic change that we need. And I think as a, as a final note on that, and, and one that's really, really crucial is that personal change, this thing that we've been guided towards. And uh, if you want to dig into like where that whole narrative comes from, it's basically sold to us by the fossil fuel industry. There's a great uh, podcast called um, Drilled that digs in. It's an investigative piece that digs into the whole thing. When it comes down to it, like personal change is really expensive. You have a bunch of money and you can put solar panels on your home and you can put in a, a heat pump and you can put in uh, an induction stovetop and buy an electric vehicle then, you know, you can live a pretty happy life and, and be carbon, carbon neutral or carbon, car more carbon efficient. But all that, all that costs a lot of money. And, um, and if you're somebody who doesn't have that money, like 
your average American who like has less than a thousand dollars in their savings account, then your only option is just like turn the lights off and turn the heat off and not buy food from overseas and just try to like grow carrots in the backyard and see how it works out. And that's, that's not, that's not something that we should be asking anybody to do. And so by looking at systemic solutions, we can create a system in which we can all progress together and we can all move into a future where we are able to engage with, you know, the, the crucial components of modern society, the things that, that make, you know, living in our modern society as good as it is, we can all engage with that together and we can bring everybody along on that journey, no, no matter their socioeconomic status or, you know, where they live or whatever. And that's, and so that's, that's the thing about the systemic change argument is that not only is it really our only option, but it also brings everybody along on that journey together. And it guides us not only towards managing our, our climate crisis, but also its intersection with social equity and social justice. And that's, that's ultimately the world that we want to live in. And that's ultimately the world that we need. And so that's, that's, that's what imperfect advocacy is all about is understanding. Yes. I have a carbon footprint. Yes. It's a challenge. Yes. There is perceived hypocrisy, but also, yes, I have a story that I can utilize to drive systemic change in the world around me. And that's something I'm going to lean into in order to create the world that we all need. Well, there you have it, folks. That is just a little of your story, Graham. I encourage folks to get a fine line available October 1st at mountaineersbooks.org. We are, we've been long friends, uh, longtime friends of Mountaineers Books. So folks know where to find Folks know all about Mountaineers, so we'll, we'll be pointing them in that direction. And uh, yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>